Namaste and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast, where we are exploring the mystical in the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. My name is Kilkenny, and today I am ebullient and overjoyed to have with us Sally Kempton, teacher, writer, and meditation powerhouse. Sally is an American spiritual teacher and writer, and she's a master of meditation, yoga philosophy, and practical tantric philosophy. I met Sally when she was a monk for 20 years, where she intensively studied the texts of Vedanta, yoga, and the North Indian tantric tradition of Kashmir Shaivism. Her current work interprets the wisdom of the tantras for mature contemporary aspirants, drawing on depth psychology and neuroscience. She teaches meditation as a process of inner exploration in which the practitioner learns to integrate heart, mind, and body in order to experience our natural state of wisdom and love. Sally is also the author of the exceedingly popular books, Meditation for the Love of It and Awakening Shakti, which are all must-reads for any serious meditators. Welcome, Sally, to the Modern Mystic Podcast. Thank you, Kilkenny. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, it's such an honor to have you, and yeah. I just want to dive in because I have so many things I'd love to hear your brilliance on. So the first question I asked all my guests, Sally, is what does it mean to be a modern mystic to you? Ah, uh, great question. Well, I believe uh, that the definition of mysticism is the understanding and experience of what is unseen and yet profoundly influential and creative in our, you know, our physical lives. So for me, being a modern mystic has been really uh, giving my life to exploring the invisible while at the same time doing my best to have a, you know, a very normal human life, uh, take care of the body, not, not use mysticism as a way of ignoring the body, uh, you know, maintaining a, a level of political and social engagement, while at the same time really deeply understanding and experiencing on a daily basis that what is behind all this is much more powerful than what we see. Mm, so profound. And I love that. And thank you because that that's, you know, and obviously you're speaking to that question, why I name this podcast Modern Mystic, because yeah. it's that, that tradition of what is it to be modern? And like you're saying, to be engaged still, to still be paying attention to that which is visible and um, as well as holding space. And as you said, and as I've seen, you've dedicated your life to the invisible and the, the simultaneity of, of both. So beautiful um, answer. And I, I love the word mystic so much 
which is connected to the Greek word mystikos and the Latin mystes, meaning one who has been initiated. And so I love to launch our conversation today. Yeah, from your incredibly unique perspective, as you were literally initiated as a monk, as a white Western female monk into an Indian yogic order within a, a spiritual community. So you have had a very formal initiation, quote unquote, in the the more traditional spiritual sense. And I'm curious what this word initiation means to you. What, as you had mentioned in your answer last question, your experience of it has been from this incredibly unique perspective. And then also for those listening who haven't had such a dramatic experience in relationship necessarily with that word initiation, you know, suggestions for how to incorporate and activate initiation more into our moment-to-moment day-to-day lives? Yeah, that, that's a beautiful question. I would say initiation has many different meanings and has had in my life as well, because what I consider, you know, well, so, okay, so let, let, let's go back to the start. Um, initiation literally means beginning, Right, so it's an initiation is a formal and often informal beginning of a change in uh, in the way you experience the world, and it can be very dramatic. For instance, my early initiation was was a Kundalini activation, which um, happened in the presence of a teacher who didn't become my ultimate teacher. But it, it was, it literally changed my perspective in a totally radical way because it, you know, that encounter awakened my Kundalini energy. And as, as I think you know, Kilkenny, when Kundalini is awake, your perspective shifts dramatically, both, you know, in the sense that your inner world, you know, the interior world literally opens. And, uh, and you stop seeing everything as simply material, simply uh, hard, you know, confrontive. Uh, it changes, the, or at least in my case, it changed the way I related to people around me. And it also brought up an enormous amount of, of um, schmutz from inside, because part of what Kundalini does is begin a process of physical and psychic purification that it can be very dramatic. So the sannyasa initiation, and, and I, one other thing I would say is that this initiation, the awakening of Kundalini, is actually available to all of us, given our level of development. And that is that, that type of awakening, you know, where what we could call the invisible comes forward in your life and starts to change your life is available to everybody, you know, and, and something that all of us can, can really not just aspire to, but work towards. And very much of spiritual practice is about that, you know, including mantra repetition, certain aspects of Hatha yoga and contact with a teacher who has that capability. So, so that's the that's what I consider the the big initiation, the life changing initiation. 
the initiation into sannyas, which is the Sanskrit word that means um, one who has renounced all worldly ties, uh, was happened about eight years, nine years later. And it was a classic formal initiation, which you know involved what you do in a sannyas initiation is is you you literally perform your own funeral rites because classically it it's the it's the end of your worldly life. Um, my guru was giving initiation to Westerners, and in a certain way, the motivation behind it, the initiation as he gave it, and as I believe is practiced uh, in in a modern context um, increasingly, that his purpose in creating the initiation was, I would say really to bind us to discipleship and to God. So uh, it, the process of, of you know, performing your funeral rites, going into the river and literally renounce, it's, there's a whole ceremony that you do where you renounce the pleasures of the three worlds, as the Indian texts say. Uh, and it's very, very transformative. At, you know, the, I don't believe I realized how transformative it was uh, until you know, 20 years later, I made the decision to renounce my Swami robes simply because I wanted to be able to work with people not as someone set apart, but as someone who is part of their lives, who is facing the same issues that we all face in this world. Um, and I discovered that I did a kind of a formal um, offering back of my robes in the temple and the ashram where I was living. And I realized in that moment that the initiation was not going to leave me just because I'd given up the robes. And that was a profoundly transformative experience because that was what made me realize that this, this initiation was, you know, the, just like the initiation of Kundalini 20 years earlier, the, uh, 30 years earlier, actually, the initiation into sannyas was a permanent shift of state. And I believe that this is what initiation is. It just changes you. So, and, you know, one of the secrets of spiritual life, as you know, is that initiation is necessary. In other words, in, all, in every tradition, you know, in, for instance, the Christians talk about being born again. What they're experiencing is an initiation, and the initiation comes from an invisible energy vortex, uh, you know, from from a, a being and a an energetic field that is not obviously present in the physical world. Whereas my initiation was accompanied by, you know, it was done in a group and it involved other human beings and fire and water, etc. Spoken words, but you know that this understanding that in spiritual initiation means the end of one life and the beginning of another, I believe is found in every tradition because it's, it's true. You know, there's, there's an awakening that comes to us 
through different means that literally initiates a new phase of life. Mm. Oh, so much richness to your story and, and all that you said. And a couple of things I just want to clarify for the people listening is that um, the Kundalini Shakti energy, um, if you want to just speak and give a little sentence about that, my understanding is that latent, dormant spiritual energy within ourselves that is said in many yogic traditions is asleep, so to speak, lifetime after lifetime. And then if one is fortunate enough and has done enough of that inner work, then it becomes awakened, um, often through a teacher, but not always through different experiences. And it's that awakening that sets us and sort of turns us on our path back towards seeking connection with the divine, that back towards our own conscious development and spiritual maturation. That's my understanding, but I'm sure you have uh, many things you could add to that. I know that you expressed it beautifully. I, I, I think the thing about Kundalini that um, that not everybody understands is that there are many, many levels of Kundalini awakening from the very mild, you know, where you start to experience a shift in your priorities. And I do believe that, that many, many people in the contemporary spiritual world and in the yoga world have experienced that, you know, that mild awakening, which as you practice and as you come in contact with people who actually have an, you know, a fully awake kundalini can become uh, you know, a full-on physical and spiritual experience. Uh, but I, I do believe that one of the really signal signs of you know, the evolutionary process that we're in, which hopefully will outrun climate change <laughs> but, <laughs> but, and everything else that's going on that's, that seems to be devolutionary, but I, I have found and I, you know, and experienced the fact that there is a kind of a widespread evolutionary transformation going on, uh, you know, in the Western world, which is what I know, as, you know, as well as in traditional Eastern cultures like India, and that it's much more widespread, I think partly because of the yoga, you know, the the great expansion of the Hatha yoga tradition into every, you know, pretty much every corner of the world. Because Hatha yoga, especially if you're a strong practitioner and have a strong teacher, Hatha yoga, one of the purposes of Hatha yoga is to change your relationship to this inner energy, this, this dormant energy. And uh, so many, many people are having this kind of awakening either in mild form, sometimes in dramatic form, who often don't really understand what has happened. You know, so part of, the, part of what I have found very important in my own work is, you know, is to A, be a resource for people who are having an awakening, and B, to help people understand what it is and how to work with it and what an extraordinary privilege it is, you know, to have this, this, you know, inner force come awake and begin to transform you. Mm, well, it's so interesting what you're saying, 
because it really is so true. I mean, way back even before I met you, I was five years old doing, you know, healthy yoga meditation in my mom's friend's basement. And uh, there weren't yoga studios on every block or even nearby. You know, we would travel four hours to, to go to ashrams and places and temples like that. And as you're speaking to now, of course, there has been this, you know, amazing um, burst of this in so many corners of the world and this evolution of consciousness that we're seeing. And it's fascinating to, to really think about the Kundalini Shakti awakening because it, it used to be, and you are an incredible powerhouse, you know, uh, intellectual and master student of all this. So you can tell us, but my understanding is for really a myriad of centuries, these practices were shrouded in mystery and you would have to have, you know, an official guru, a teacher, um, you know, even in the, the, the monk traditions of Buddhism, I've heard, you know, how the, the story of the student would have to go outside and, you know, wait in the rain and the snow and the sleet, like for seven years or, or, you know, a certain prescriptive number of years before they would even, you know, get a few teachings or a practice. And so now what we're facing as a culture, which is such a blessing and a gift, having so many more people exposed to these practices that are so powerful that have the potential to awaken our spiritual energy but then it becomes okay but then who's managing it and supporting the management and the the journey of it which is the 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 function of of a teacher and a quote-unquote guru as such uh yes exactly and you know as when there's any kind of dramatic shift which, you know, I think we're all pretty aware is happening on multiple levels right now, the management issue becomes a big deal because people don't have experience of it. And the thing I've noticed over the last 30 years or so since Kundalini became a topic that many, many people in the West are familiar with, which, you know, it certainly wasn't when I started and maybe even when you started, uh, that part of what's happened is that people begin to have spontaneous awakenings without being in a context where it can be explained. So a lot of mythology has grown up around Kundalini. A lot of it because when people don't understand what Kundalini is and don't recognize that, that, that this energy which I'm going to call she, because in my tradition, Kundalini is seen as a form of the divine feminine. So in relating to your own inner energy as a form of goddess energy, it actually allows you to recognize the divinity in your own body. You know, the fact that, you're, that, that the energy that powers your life is not personal. It's not even biological it's spirit energy, you know, and that we have that spirit energy in every cell unknown to us until this particular aspect of the life force awakens. And if people understand that, that, that they have come into a process through, you know, I agree, amazing good fortune and probably lifetimes of inner work, uh, if people don't realize that this is the turning point that's going to connect them to the planet, to each other, to 
you know, the higher realms. And, you know, just imagine that suddenly they have a lot of energy moving through their system that they don't understand. People get frightened, they get confused, they think they should shut it down. Uh, and for this reason, I really believe that education about Kundalini is crucially important because there are ways of working with the energy that allow it to unfold within you at the speed that is okay for you. You know, there are some people who, who really have the physical and mental stamina for dramatic energetic experience. Most of us don't. So to understand the energy, to understand that, that this energy awakens in you for profoundly benign purposes, that it's love energy, <clears throat> and that part of its work is to help you remove the, those aspects of your, psyche, of your psyche and your body that are standing in the way of a full experience of love. So, you know, Kundalini is really about removing all the blocks to understanding that this universe is made of love. Mm, so beautifully put. And therefore, and therein lie the practices. I mean, I, I have so many aspects of things you've touched on that I want to dive into, but this seems like a natural gateway into thus the practices. Like our listeners might be thinking, okay, well, how do I work with this energy or what are concrete ways I can interface with energy? Or as I mentioned in my question earlier, like in the day-to-day -day moments of life, how do I integrate initiation and, and the practices in my mind and my experience at least are a, a means to do so. The practices of meditation, pranayam, breath work, and, and of course the asana, the yoga, and, and then the day-to-day -day interpersonal disciplines with others and within ourselves. And I'm wondering if you could start with your mastery of meditation. So how does meditation work with experiencing this Kundalini Shakti so one can essentially evolve and be more connected, as you mentioned, to this field of love within them? Why meditate? What is it? Uh, yes. <clears throat> and I also want to say that in terms of working with your own awakening, that mantra practice is also crucial. Mm. So, and, you know, as you know, traditionally, a student would go to a teacher and the teacher would give, give the student a mantra. And the student would repeat the mantra and gradually the, the energy within the mantra would kind of permeate the, the subtle body and awakening would occur and through the mantra and also the the energy in the mantra would help to regulate the awakening you know so because mantra at least um, at least most of the great mantras that teachers customarily give beginning students are their their gentle mantras their soothing mantras their mantras that are that are designed to awaken your parasympathetic nervous system so that you know you move out of tension and into a state of deeper and deeper inner relaxation. So, and of course, meditation does that as well. Uh, the, the thing about meditation that, you know, that sometimes 
confuses people or that, you know, people that, that people can't, you know, feel they can't quite get their arms around it. It's partly because, you know, we're so out of touch with the natural world. We're so out of touch with our own biorhythms as a civilization. And our minds are so busy and so overstimulated. And I'm not going to say more about that because we all know it. So, so sitting for meditation initially is often, often feels quite difficult because, you know, you're, you're following the breath, you're doing a visualization, you're repeating your mantra, but thoughts and distractions continually arise. And for many people, this is discouraging. They feel like they're not good at it. They haven't mastered it. So in my own case, uh, I had some very beautiful and alluring experiences of meditation in the months after my initial, my initiations. Um, And after I met my teacher, a lot of the process of meditation for me was activated by, by mantra practice. So, because his, his, his method of meditation was really, it was very simple. You know, he would give you a mantra you would sit coordinating the mantra with the breath or not and just allow the process to take place. And your job would be to just keep bringing your mind back to the mantra, you know, in the, in the 435 times that it leaves the mantra in the course of an hour meditation. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's, you know, as we know, as meditation becomes more popular, people begin to realize that meditation is, it's kind of an all-purpose practice. In other words, it's a a terrific stress reduction practice, as you know, that just sitting and focusing on the breath, letting the breath deepen, um, maybe counting breaths. But even counting breath is not that important. But what is important is to join your awareness to the breath and let it come deeper and deeper into your body or let it come deeper and deeper into the heart center. So in that sense, meditation is, can be, should be a way of coming into your body with the recognition that you are not your body. And this seems somewhat paradoxical, but, you know, most of us are profoundly out of our bodies, even if we do physical practice because we're directing it always from the mind. But uh, you know, once meditation has taken root in you, then what you discover is that you, you actually can bring your awareness into your body, into the spiritual centers, into the muscles, and literally transform the way that your body is being experienced. So meditation is an extremely helpful uh, health measure on that level. Uh, and, you know, it's also a way to, uh, to have, to get questions answered. I, my practice for years has been when there's something I have to figure out or when I'm, uh, writing something or an article or a talk, uh, I will often just start the process every day that I'm working by sitting in meditation, asking the question that I want answered. And after, 20 minutes or half an hour of meditation, I will come out, the question will have been answered. 
you know, because the, and the answer will have come from a deeper, truer place than I could have figured out with my mind. So in that sense, meditation is an extraordinarily helpful practice and platform for mining your own wisdom and, mm. you know, and uh, indispensable, I think, for that reason. You know, mm. uh, and of course, as your meditation deepens, you begin to more and more have the experience of yourself as immortal spirit, for want of a better word. You know, it's, I don't know if there is a better word, you know, but, <laughs> you, you know, you start to recognize that your own consciousness, your own awareness is independent of your physical experience, that it can take in, hold, and be, <clears throat> be a witness participant in the physical world while itself remaining untouched. So, and this is a process that, you know, I would say is the heart of mystical experience. It's just the recognition of, of, the, of spirit as your, na- as your own nature. And what was the term you so beautifully coined? Did you say immortal spirit? Immortal spirit, yes. Yeah, immortal, because I want everyone to hear that. And just as you said, there are just such a myriad of benefits of meditation. And ultimately, as you punctuated your last comment with so eloquently, it's connected back to the mysticism. It's connected to being with the invisible parts of self and in that way becoming more threaded to the invisible, magical, and amazing parts of this universe and also being anchored more fully into your body, which we spoke of with Modern Mystic, right? It's this amazing, as you put it, all-purpose tool that always astounds me how much more in my body I feel, and yet then simultaneously connected to the the deepest place of my soul and my spirit. So thank you for explaining it as you did so beautifully. And would you extrapolate then on what your understanding and experiences of mindfulness, because that's also become such a term. Yes. And it's obviously connected to meditation. And I'm curious, you know, what you make of it yourself. I know myself, I often think about mindfulness personally, more of what I bring back to my life as the party favor after meditation <laughs> and integrate. That's one way I think of it. But I'm curious um, how you perceive this this notion of mindfulness. Is it different from meditation? Is it connected? W- what's your take on it? Well, I think it can be either. In other words, um, you know, in the Buddhist mindfulness uh, in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, where it's all about mindfulness, you know, you, 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 and Buddha actually explained that meditation is mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of thoughts, and it's it's really a pr- the practice of bringing your attention fully into it, your breath, into your body, uh, into your you know the the f- emotions that you're feeling so that you're actually training your attention to remain one-pointed and it's you know i i think mindfulness is a fantastic as a as a meditation practice i think it's a fantastic practice i i also feel that it's extremely good for beginners um and i'm not you know this is not to this is not to say that it, it's not a practice. It's a practice that obviously can can uh, 
be done on a beginning level and on a very advanced level. And on the advanced level, mindfulness is really leads to the same place as, you know, more obviously mystical forms of meditation in that it teaches you to identify with awareness, you know, with that awareness, which can, which can be aware of the breath, which can be aware of thoughts, which can feel the movement of fear, for example, inside your body and investigate it. You know, one of the great terms in Buddhist mindfulness practice is, uh, is the idea of looking at your dysfunction with curiosity rather than with fear or repulsion. You know, so for instance, if you're feeling scared or if you're feeling angry and you just allow yourself to be present inside the fear, to feel how it feels in your body, to feel the sensations of anger, to notice what's going on in your mind, uh, then for, first of all, it's, of course, if it's a very good way of managing emotions, which is, I think, one of the things you were implying. We bring it, we come out of meditation and we're suddenly able to be conscious in our interactions and in our self-care management. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a profound tool for every form of development. And one of the things I wanted that I didn't mention when, I was, when we were talking about modern mysticism is that one of the, the great understandings that's come about in the last 50 years is the understanding of development, you know, that, that actually human beings go on developing in adult life and that in the course of a lifetime you can, you can actually change the structure of the way you think and view the world. And again, this is something that's available to everybody, you know, to, and I, you know, I think if you look at your life, you'll see that, that in the course of your adult life, you have developed at different stages. You know, you, maybe we, maybe we start out um, feeling very separate from the world and almost scared of the world or you know, we graduate to realizing we can actually affect the world. Um, you know, at a, at a certain point, we start to realize that everything is interconnected. You know, there's, there's just many, many levels of development that we come to that are psychological and human as well as spiritual. And meditation and mindfulness, both these practices actually facilitate speedy development. So, you know, as you were saying, it, um, mindfulness is the party favor that you bring out of meditation. In a certain sense, mindfulness is what you develop in meditation as you are, you know, as you, as you described, and then we can bring it into every part of our life. And that's when we, you know, that's how we develop as mature beings. Mm, thank you for for articulating that because that's exactly what I was implying, right? That's because I've had different people and students over the years, even family members, talk about, well, you're leaving the world <laughs> to meditate. You're going away, and it's about going to the center of the center of oneself to come back into the world and be more authentic and effective and um, skillful. Yeah. So, wow, what a beautiful and really um, helpful description. Thank you so, so much. And I'm just curious because 
with your incredibly unique perspective, and I'm thinking about going into meditation, going out of meditation, you, as you described earlier, you know, we're in an ashram setting and then leaving the ashram setting and that really heartfelt and, and, um, incredible understanding of, oh, wait, I'm actually not really leaving my initiation. You're bringing that now out to the world in a different way. And I'm thinking of the parallel between that and and how you spoke of meditation. And I'm just wondering, when you were initiated as a monk and then when you left, was there any kind of almost culture shock? Like when you have lived in a country, for those listeners who have for a little while, or even when I moved down south and then moved back after four years to the north, I, I had you know an experience of a little bit of a jolt. And I'm wondering on either end, how was that for you, those transitions? Because when we talk about going into ashram life, just so our listeners understand, as Sally mentioned, you know, she did her funeral rites and one commits to wearing, you know, only saffron orange-esque robes and one, you know, is abstinent from sex and one is devoted purely to, to, to teaching, essentially, yogic practices. So could you speak a little bit about that and what that was like and if you had a sense of any kind of culture shock or if that was just seamless both ways in and out? No, no, it certainly wasn't seamless. But I, I, one thing I would say is that the ashram that I lived in was, uh, it was not that cloistered. In other words, there are always a lot of people there. We did a lot of programs. There was a, there was an almost seamless integration of um, students who who were not in the, who did not live in the ashram, you know, who, who would come for brief visits, and the people who did live there. So it wasn't like I went from you know a you know from a cloistered monastery into Times Square, <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, it was a big culture shock, and I had to. Uh, relearn a lot of things because I was in the ashram for 30 years. Uh, and also, you know, the, the world had, the world changed radically between 1974 when I got involved with, with that, with the spiritual path and uh, 2002 when I left the ashram. Um, you know, politics had changed. Uh, the, you know, the whole, tech revolution had occurred, values had uh, often seemed very different um, in positive ways, by the way, as well as negative ways. So I actually had to adjust to a new world. And, you know, including the political, let's say the political and cultural understanding that I, uh, that had been part of my youth and that I, that I took into the ashram, I realized that that particular cultural understanding was no longer the predominant cultural understanding in the circles and, I moved in. And, and that, may, I, may yeah. I ask you, I don't mean to interrupt you, so please hold you, that thought, but just I'm um, thinking about what I've read about your, your young adulthood. Right. And I just want to contextualize that because it's, it's pretty extraordinary. My understanding is that you are a flourishing young journalist in New York covering popular culture, arts, feminist issues, so this is in what, the late 60s, early 70s for Esquire, New York Times, Village Voice, in circles of Andy Warhol, Yoko Ono with the incredibly promising book career, right? So this is just to give the audience a sense of where you were in the outer world. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was part of the downtown culture of the late 60s and early 70s. 
not so much as, you know, because I wasn't an artist, I was a journalist, but uh, that was my context, that was my world. And, you know, it was, and this, this was the time of the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, you know, the culture that I lived in was, uh, was a, essentially a left-wing, um, you know, kind of culturally adventurous, um, culturally revolutionary attitude towards the world. And then I think what happened was the Reagan administration <laughs> just, changed, just changed the whole face of it. Um, so, you know, and there certainly is a, a deep countercultural scene now. Uh, and, you know, we are, as I think a lot of people have noticed, you know, we're moving after 25 or 30 years of essentially political apathy on the part of young people. We're, we're, you know, clearly now in a period where there's enormous, um, sense of, the necessity of political activism. But when I came out of the ashram, there was none of that. So the conversation was different. You know, it was, everyone was much more about uh, how you personally make your life better, you know, how you make a lot of money, um, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which had never been issues for me or my generation. And mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I, I realized is that my generation, you know, I was born at the end of World War II. My generation was, the, I think, the most privileged group of young people on, who ever lived on this planet. You know, it was, mm -hmm. it was, this, I was a pre-boomer, a couple of years pre-boomer. It was a small group of, uh, of, you know, people born in my cohort. It meant it was easy to get into college. College was cheap. I went to the one, one of the most expensive colleges in the, this country. And Where'd you go? Sarah Lawrence. Oh, and uh, the, the tuition was as expensive as Harvard. It was $4,000 a year. So <laughs> if you can imagine. Oh, <laughs> yeah. my goodness. And, and then we came into a world where, you know, it was very easy uh, to get a job, you know, to pursue a career. And where we also felt like it wasn't, wasn't so necessary to have money um, and it became apparent in the late 70s 80s etc that uh, the world wasn't like that anymore you know there are more people everything was more expensive um, it was harder to you know to get ahead in the world and people just became more desperate and concerned with material issues than we had to be, you know, we didn't have to mm. be because there was so much opportunity that was just literally, I think we just took it for granted. So so that's such an interesting perspective because when thinking about your choice to become a monk, that's a fascinating thought of the, the group of peers you were in and how you felt yeah. about materialism and things like that. Because I know, like, for myself, my daughter, she's um, 12, and she asked me last week, when you were my age, it was going to seventh grade, you know, what did you want to do for your career? 
And I thought about it, and I and and this is the truth. So it's ironic we're speaking today. I said I wanted to be a monk. I had like ah. a good like two two year period where I was like voraciously reading texts, and I would go up to ashrams and spiritual places, and I was just like voracious. Um, me thinking about that and she kind of looked at me funny right. and she was like of course you did uh, knowing you like right, and then she's weird. like well you you, you kind of you kind of do that now mom she was like and and you know because there there weren't ways to share teachings and practices and and there I said to her well I guess there really was a seed of that there was an inkling that I had never really thought about that I really you know fulfilled my own destiny my own way and there was like a murmuring in my heart for that but that was during a time where also it was before you came came out of the ashram formally as a monk but it was a you know what was going on it wasn't like everything was easy and things were very to the left and there wasn't all this artistic stuff going around and I think even today it's interesting because I think a, a lot of spiritual people particularly who are on the younger end you know might glamorize and glorify and think oh I just want to go away somewhere now because those things that you're speaking of you know we hear even now with the millennial generation how they're set up to not be able to afford colleges and how more than ever it's even more exacerbated those important things that you said came after your generation yeah Um, yeah I I mean the, the life for millennials and younger and older, of course, is very precarious now in a way that it didn't used to be. So in a way, um, I think that, that the, you know, the intensity of the situation that, that we're in now, it can accelerate your spiritual life because you start to realize that you have to have a place of wisdom and refuge if you're going to get through this you know, life at this time. So, you know, t- hard times can be very, very spiritually helpful. Uh, but I think for, mo- for many people, the struggle of, you know, just getting by, making a living, paying your bills, raising your children is a lot, you know, and, um, and it's, you know, it seems to be harder and harder. So in a certain way, people don't have time uh, to to deeply question in the way that that one must do to have a you know to have a genuinely transformative spiritual life. You have to be able to take some time to question your assumptions. And I do believe that a lot of the millennials and the Gen Z people uh, are doing exactly that. And what they're what they're questioning is our social arrangements, you know, our political situation, um, the inequities, the you know, the radical inequalities in our society, uh, and th- that's something that is tremendously important and needs to be done. And I, my hope is my, uh, let's say, a part of the work I feel that people like you and I do is to to help people understand that having an, a deep inner life is going to make the work that you do to tra- transform the world uh, much more doable. You know, it, and I, I just, I think it's tremendously important for political activists to have a, have a strong practice because otherwise, you know, you, you get caught up in whatever is the, the cause du jour or whatever is going on on your Twitter feed and you're you're compl- always completely focused on the outside, and therefore, 
powerless, you know, because the outside world is too big for most people to be able to affect in a meaningful way. But once you've gone inside and started to find the wisdom and power that you have, that you really have, then every action you take can come from that place. And it just can be, as you said earlier, much more effective. Yeah, so important. And you said so many things that I think our listeners can can really relate to, just your sense of, as you spoke of, you know, bills and the busyness and the fullness and our schedules more than ever. Yeah. Um, and this being more and more a norm to to work more, to, 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 you know, be pulled out by all those centrifugal forces. And so that's the beauty of this expanded collective spiritual, you know, hopefully elevated consciousness movement, right, of, of trying to resist that. And as you're saying, take, you know, pockets of peace and practices to refuel from the inside. So yeah, that when we do our work in the world, and that's in my mind, what a, what a modern mystic is going back out to the world, as you spoke of so eloquently earlier and, and doing that work and showing up with that work and, and having it be as potent as possible. Yeah, I, I'm curious if you could speak, because this is a question I've gotten for decades, the difference between spirituality and religion and your mind. Uh. Because this is something I remember as a child when I met you, Not people would ask me, and I didn't really know what to say. And then I, over time, I've contemplated it. And I think a lot of our, our listeners would say, you know, what, it, what is the difference in Sally's mind? We'd love to hear. Spirituality is about direct experience. You know, that, that spirituality comes, it begins to be born when, when you either start asking yourself, there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing, and start looking you know, looking for answers, uh, which will eventually lead you to recognizing that it's your own mind and your own inner state that's really determining your experience, and to start to connect yourself to, you know, what in AA they call the higher power, or spirit, or God, uh, doesn't really, or goddess, um, which is what many of my students call the higher power, uh, that it's it's an individual journey in which you have companions and teachers, hopefully, because those are very important, but it's essentially based on experience and it honors personal experience. Whereas religion, uh, and you know, which I think is an, can be an enormously positive and helpful force in life, and also, of course, destructive, is almost always about accepting a set of first of principles that you're required to believe in, accepting a hierarchy, accepting intermediaries between yourself and spirit. Uh, you know, it's, it's very much, you know, religions create tribes, right? You know, they're, they're, they have a deep um, kind of resonance with, uh, with people's culture and family life. And it's almost like religious institutions are part of the social fabric you know, as, you know, as governments are, as, um, as banks are, it's a realm of life, you know, that's, that you can pursue without ever really turning inside. Mm. Uh, whereas spirituality, it's all about turning inside. Mm. And so 
you hit the nail on the head, like just about one's own experience, not like yeah. you have to believe this. Yeah. But really, you're invited to do a set of practices and then see the results for yourself. Exactly. And you learn you. To, to follow your intuition um, in a way that's meaningful and not just, you know, deluded. I mean, we often think, we often think, you know, we're having a gut feeling or a gut intuition and it turns out that it's just the mind. But spirituality actually awakens our intuition so that we begin to know what, what the next right thing is. Uh, you know, to, we, we, we begin to be able to be guided and led uh, by something that we trust that's not our own mind. Mm. Mm. So, so good. That intuition, that's such a part of, of the mystic path and such a part of, as you said earlier, a lot of us are cut off from because we're not connected to our bodies. Yeah. So as you stated, that's why I agree with you. Those Buddhist practices of mindfulness are so great because they, they can for entry level meditators, they, they bring us back to our bodies, connect us to our minds and then lead us to our intuitions and that, yeah. that intuitive um, inner GPS, I like to call it is such a benefit of the practices and meditation. And I want to offer you deep gratitude for your illuminating wisdom on how meditation not only helps one process stress, mitigate anxiety, and improve all bodily functions, but how, as you put it so eloquently, it literally threads the body and mind together and leads us to the destination of our intuitions in the hub of the heart. Yeah. Sally, we have so much more to talk about, including the wildly popular and fast-growing path called Tantra, its practices and unique relationship to sex. In addition to how one can work with the goddess and god energies, which you are an incomparable expert on and have written extensively about, plus you've so generously offered to guide us with your unparalleled skill into a short meditation. So I have decided to make your interview into two parts since you've so generously offered to download so much of your wisdom and so much of your time for our listeners. Mm. So thank you for this wellspring of wisdom. And folks who are listening, you will not want to miss out on part two of this compelling conversation that can be found on whichever podcast platform you are listening to part two not to be missed so sally for those listening now can you please tell folks where they can find out more about you and your inimitable work in the world so i have a website sallykempton.com which is probably the best way i also have a facebook page called Sally Kempton Awakened Heart, but most information is on my website. And there are articles there. There's audio courses that you can download on very many subjects, including one on Tantra. I teach a lot on uh, of audio courses. Obviously, now we all are teaching audio and Zoom courses. Many of my courses are available through my website, and I do new ones every couple of months. So I'm beginning a, a course in late November on Patanjali Yoga Sutras, which is really a, it's, it's very meditation focused. Uh, we've already done two, uh, you know, two classes 
on the, the text itself. And now we're moving into the, the deep meditative part of it. So it actually is a, it's a, it, that course is going to be a very good way to, to develop a meditation habit. To find Sally, her website, sallykempton.com, is fabulous. There are so many resources on that. And as you said, you continually are offering things that I'm constantly salivating over and love doing with you when I can. So check out her work there. Sally is also so generously offering my Patreon supporters at the five and 10 month level her two luminous awakened heart meditations and also the supporters at the 30 and $50 levels those meditations plus her finding center meditation. So check out her books, her two books I mentioned earlier. I'll have them in the show notes. She is an illuminative, profound teacher and her books had literally changed my meditation game. So thank you so much, Sally, for really your lifetime of practices, your profound wisdom, your authenticity and um, teaching that has really impacted generations of practitioners like myself. Well, thank you so much, Kilkenny, and back at you. Thank you for your great work. So it's mm-hmm. so beautiful to be in this universal sangam together. <laughs> well, it's a, a high honor. Namaste. Namaste. Have a great day, all of you. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please write me a review on whichever platform you are listening. Also, check out my exciting Patreon page at patreon.com slash modernmysticlove, where I offer all sorts of uplifting yoga classes, meditation classes, and other amazing offerings from my guests on this podcast to all my incredible supporters. Even folks who donate at the $5 a month level are so appreciated as every cent helps this busy mama of three. Or check out my website, modernmystic.love, where you can purchase yoga videos of all levels with me ranging from gentle yoga up through advanced asana and also meditation videos there. Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste.